Welcome to the Cardinal Med Podcast, where our goal is to empower and inform future doctors. If you're a student looking to achieve more and stress less, you've come to the right place. Here's your host, Chris DeCero. Welcome back to the Cardinal Med Podcast. This is episode number eight, titled, Should I Go to Medical School Through the Military? And to help answer this question, I brought on future doctor Ben Kroll onto the show. Now, Ben is a fourth-year medical student who's finishing up his time at the University of South Florida Morsani College of Medicine via the Select program. And as part of this program, Ben is finishing up his latter half of medical school at the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, where he's doing his clerkships. But aside from Ben's wealth of experiences, both as a pre-med, medical student, and now soon-to-be resident, Ben's background is pretty unique in that he entered medical school with the help of the U.S. military via the HPSP scholarship. And in this interview, Ben will talk a lot about what exactly that is and discussing the pros and cons of taking this route so you can decide if that route is most appropriate for you. Now, my allergies were kind of killing me throughout this interview at the time that it was recorded, but aside from that, this was probably the best interview we've had on the show to date. So uh, for that, a huge thanks to Ben and the best of luck to him throughout the rest of his medical journey. His commitment to helping inform and empower students and future doctors will undoubtedly make him a kick-ass doctor himself. So I hope you gain as much from this interview as I certainly have and from the plethora of knowledge that Ben has provided to me in the past throughout my medical journey personally. So with that, please enjoy. All right, so today I'm joined here by Dr. Ben Kroll. He's going to provide a little insight on what it's like to uh, go through the whole pre-med track and ultimately go through med school um, with the help of the United States military. So how are you doing today, Ben? Awesome. Really happy to be here. Almost Dr. Kroll. I got more, four and a half more weeks, something like that. So I guess just to start off, start us off here, would you mind giving a, a little background of more of like your personal experiences and your academic journey? Maybe like, <laughs> this might be backtracking a little for you, but what you were looking for to college when you first started off. Um, what you majored in, did you like it, all that type of stuff. Sure thing, yeah, happy to. Um, so I'm from just outside of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, kind of in a little coal mining patch town. Nobody really goes to college a whole lot. Um, so I didn't know what to do in terms of college. I, I applied to three colleges and interviewed at one because I thought that was normal. Um, <laughs> and I ended up you know, here at Muhlenberg. Uh, luckily enough, it kind of worked out like that. Um, I had an idea that I was looking for a pre-med program. Um, I knew that I would have liked a smaller community. I knew that I wanted exposure to things other than just the sciences. So a liberal arts education really worked out for me. Mm. Um, I'm still a strong advocate of liberal arts education. I'm very happy with my decision to end up going to Muhlenberg. Um, While I was here, I majored, I double majored in chemistry and philosophy. Uh, When you get too bored of one, you can switch to the other, use the other side of your brain, keep some sanity that way. Um, So that, I was uh, on the pre-med track all four years. And I managed to study abroad to fit that in too. So it was a, uh, and I did some frat life in between there, you know, here and there. So I had a very full college experience. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so after college, uh, I ended up taking a gap year. Uh, it was unintended, and I was reluctant to do so. Kind of uh, extenuating circumstances led to me needing to take some more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked full time on an ambulance on an uh, advanced life support truck here in Allentown, uh, and I don't regret that at all. I I thought it was a terrific, terrific experience. I got my clinical acumen up and I I think I went into medical school a little bit stronger um, of a a medical student because of it. Mm -hmm. So pretty happy with, with, you know, the way that life has had to go. Gotcha. 
um, looking back, would you advocate for a gap year necessarily? Or um, like I understand you said there's definitely value in it, but would you say it's for everyone or is there kind of a mixed bag? It's a good question. Um, I would I would say that you shouldn't feel bad one way or the other. I think that the big reason I was reluctant to take it was because everybody around me was going directly to medical school. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I had quite enough advising to know that it's okay to take time. Um, it's actually, you know, it's more common to take time either before college or after college before starting med school than it is to go straight through. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know that I can say that I strongly advocate for one or the other. I would just say whatever path is, is calling out to you, don't feel bad about doing what you need to do. Um, and you know, if you're going to take that gap year to, you know, just backpack through Europe and that's, you know, that's fine, uh, especially if you're a stellar applicant, but <laughs> If you're going to take a gap year, make it count. Do something mm-hmm. that's going to really make you a, a better applicant to the medical school mm-hmm. program. It's just, it's so competitive. Yeah. And it's funny, in my own personal experience, I feel like mm-hmm. it's the opposite now. I feel more people are taking gap years than <laughs> are going straight through. It's so. crazy how, how things change. It was, what, just five years ago that, um, you know, I uh, graduated and it's already, you know, so different. There's a new MCAT. Mm-hmm. Everything's, you know, becoming more and more competitive. It's yeah. crazy. Um, and moving on from Muhlenberg to med school, what were you looking for in a med school? I was looking for a bigger Muhlenberg, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> now, um, I wanted, again, to get something more than just the sciences. Uh, with accreditation rules for medical schools, everybody is obligated to cover things like ethics and um, uh, emotional intelligence, population health. Everybody's required to cover it, but how in-depth they go into it and how much they own those topics is very variable. So when you're looking at medical schools, you can't just see that it's covered in their curriculum map. You really need to take the time to ask the questions to people who have gone through it. Hey, is this actually something that you take pride in or is it a checkbox? Uh, so with the program that I'm in, uh, University of South Florida Select Program, we have an additional curriculum that we come out right now with a graduate certificate in uh, kind of a combination of population health, uh, emotional intelligence training, mm-hmm. uh, and, and values-based patient-centered care. Interesting. So we have a whole extra curriculum. We do we do advanced quality improvement projects with the the Lehigh Valley Network Health Network up here, which I'll explain how that whole geographic connection works. Mm-hmm. But uh, the curriculum really gets us into the mud with a lot of these difficult issues that often don't get covered until on the job training. Yeah. So the the main question that I got asked on residency interviews was, okay, University of South Florida, why were you in Pennsylvania? And the answer to that is that as another component of this special curriculum, the select program, about 50 of us every year out of the class have a little more than 150. We start in Tampa at the University of South Florida for our first two years, and then we do our clinical training all at the Lehigh Valley Health Network centered in Allentown. So everybody, regardless of where you're from, you're, you're, you're with this cohort all four years, and you do that geographic switch. Mm-hmm. And I guess even backtracking from that, um, if it, you don't mind saying, what got you interested in medicine in general? Um, you know, I don't know that there was a definitive time that it was like, oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything kind of just made sense. You know, it's, uh, I think there are people out there that are nerdy like me and, uh, probably like you too, <laughs> probably. <laughs> that, um, you know, science just, uh, works for us uh-huh. and it comes a little bit easier to us than a lot of other people do. And it's a gift. Uh, and I, I think it's almost a calling, you know, if you can find something that you're really good at, uh, and you enjoy doing it and it can help other people. And to top it all off, it pays really well. I mean, that's 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 it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, obviously the the first few are much more important than the last one. If you're going into it for the money, you're there are much easier ways to make money than going through eight years of education and so many years of residency just to to get a salary. But 
You know, I, I think for most people, it, everything just, the more you learn about it, the more it clicks. Mm -hmm. But obviously, you know, I'm sure you'd agree it's not for everyone. Is there any like personality traits you think would kind of boot you from the whole path? Yeah. So I, I think that um, if you have reservations about your personality in terms of wanting to interact regularly with people, you need to really be introspective and, and think about what your goals are and how to, how to best achieve them. You can still do that through medicine uh, in so many different ways. You can do it through an MD or a DO degree uh, through fields that don't interact with people quite as much. But everything in medicine is going to be enhanced by the way you interact with people. Mm -hmm. Because like it or not, you're going to have coworkers, you're going to have uh, interdependent teams. You know, I think that the, the stereotype is, you know, pathologists just hang out in the basement, do autopsies and look at slides. Well, guess what? It, you know, I'm going into surgery and when we have to take a biopsy of a malignancy uh, from the operating room, we need to make sure that we're getting all the tumor. So we need to take a, a section of what we think is clean tissue and we need to run it over to the pathology lab and go over it with the pathologist and interact with them. Mm -hmm. You don't work in a bubble. And uh, medicine is really trying to get away from those silos of I'm in this specialty, you're in this specialty, and never shall the two mix. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's very collaborative. Uh, you need to have your heart in it. But if you if you really really don't want to do it, there are you know that segment of people that go through medical school and all this training and end up going into things like industry or research. MD PhDs are a possibility uh, to do more you know bench research kind of things and just use that MD training as a, as kind of another component to their mm -hmm. lifestyle. Yeah, and the real irony is that it's so contingent upon like your social skills, but for <laughs> about eight years you're kind of just shut away um at the books the whole time right <laughs> yeah yeah really it's like um you go to the hospital and you're expected to you know interact and be joyous with people and then you're expected to go home and, and live in a shell of, yeah. <laughs> of, of books and online you know databases yeah it's <laughs> that's a great contrast um and i understand a huge part of your medical journey was the HP, hpsp scholarship uh which am i giving our listeners a rundown of what exactly that is absolutely yeah so um i came into medical school on the air force's health professional scholarship program hpsp um, and before i get too much into it i think this is a really good time to say that uh, my interview here does not necessarily represent the views of the air force i'm not a representative of, of the air force in that respect mm -hmm. um so and when i went through hpsp um you know the initial part again that was like four or five years ago so some things may have changed um, I've stayed up to date the best as I can, so I'll give you the answers I can give you from my personal experience. But of course, it's always important to try to corroborate these things with other people. There are so many rumor mills flying around. Um, and while we're on the topic of rumor mills, for the love of God, stay off of Student Doctor Network. <laughs> this is this is if 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 people listening take one thing away from this interview, it's that it's just don't go on that website. It will make you feel horrible. It does, <laughs> you know. And there, I think it's like the same one or two people that had a bad experience in the military that hog every forum. You can't find a good thing about the HPSP, you know, scholarship program on that website. Mm -hmm. Anyway, maybe now <laughs> I'll answer your question. Um, so yeah, I, um, I probably about halfway through college, somebody who was on an HPSP scholarship, I think with the Navy, uh, started telling me about it. And again, I think that this is going to be a similar unsatisfying answer as when I, answered why I got into medicine, everything kind of just clicked. There was no one moment that, you know, no aha moment. Everything I kept hearing about it clicked. Uh, I love the idea of serving my country. Uh, I think that that goes along with the same motivations that people go into medicine. If you're going into it for the right reasons, it's to, to serve a greater mission. <clears throat> and medicine in the military just checks that box a thousand times over. Yeah, huge missions. Yeah. 
Um, so to top it all off, they pay for medical school, mm-hmm. everything. I don't know what tuition is at my medical school. That's the truth. Uh, I don't see the bill. They bill that directly to the military. Anything that's required by my medical school gets reimbursed. So uh, lab supplies, scrubs, stethoscope, um, otoscope, anything that's required, all the textbooks, you know, I pay for and then I submit reimbursements and it's all covered. My, oh, okay. my, my last round of boards uh, just this past summer was $2,000. I didn't wow. pay for it. That's crazy. Life is good. Um, and do they cover uh, your undergra- undergraduate career too? As soon as you accept the scholarship, or is it just med school and then just on? medical school? So, gotcha. Uh, with the undergrad aspect, if you wanted to do like ROTC, uh, you could certainly use that as an option. Uh, a lot of people will, who do ROTC end up applying heavily to the military medical school because you already come out of college with a commitment, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like that in for a penny, in for a pound uh, yeah. saying. They just start adding on to it. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I can't speak too much about the ROTC side. Uh, I just don't have the exposure to it. I will say that in ROTC, you are a cadet throughout college. And then at the conclusion of your ROTC college experience, you become an officer mm-hmm. as opposed to HPSP, where as soon as I signed on the dotted line, I was a commissioned second lieutenant. I was an officer wow. in the military as soon as I started first year. So there's a little bit of a difference there. I went to officer training as a second lieutenant, not as a cadet, which had its perks. Mm. <laughs> and did accepting the scholarship limit you to where you can go to medical school? No, if anything, it would have the opposite. Um, it's completely, it doesn't limit you in any fashion. If anything, if you're considering finance as a barrier, it completely eliminates that. I got to take that out of the equation completely. Um, I don't, I wonder how many uh, military students are going to end up going to that NYU free tuition thing. I'm really curious about that. Those are the people who have their, you know, their hearts in it and are going to the military medicine for the right reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it opened more doors. Mm-hmm. So the military didn't say like, you have to go with these military affiliated schools or is that not really a thing? Correct. There, there's only one military affiliated school. That's the uniform, uh, health services school in, in, uh, DC and they're your active duty throughout your medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great training, um, you get a lot of perks. Uh, a lot of the Air Force guys that I, guys and gals that I talked to ended up doing, you know, uh, training missions in Central America and Asia and India. You can end up getting, uh, you can go on a, you know, medical ship and do disaster relief. A couple of, one, one guy I talked to got to take a ride in an F-15 <laughs> and, you know, hit several Gs, almost pass out. You oh get to God. do some cool stuff if you go to the military medical school. Uh, for me, I, it wasn't my choice because of the additional commitment that it requires. You then owe year for year of your medical school in addition to what you'd owe for, um, I'm, I'm sorry, let me backtrack a little bit. If you go to the military medical school, you're going to end up owing extra time more than I would owe for HPSP. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because you're, they're, you're active duty. They're paying your salary. You're getting paid. Not only do you go to school for free, you're getting active duty salary. So you're getting you know like 50K a year to be a student. Interesting. Okay. I get a stipend with HPSP. So uh, I get a stipend to live on. It's not super generous. Uh, you know, after taxes, it's like two grand a month, but mm-hmm. it's better than all my colleagues who get nothing. Yeah, zero. <laughs> and I assume in your uh, in your medical training thus far in medical school and um, as, it, as it concludes for you, it didn't differ much depending like going through the military versus, you know, yeah, the tr- that's more a, That's a really good question because I think that one of my concerns was, hey, do I have to balance the obligations of the military with the obligations of a demanding life in medical school? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is, by and large, no. The only military obligations you have during medical school are officer training, which most people will do either before first year 
or in between first and second year, which is the only summer you really have off. Uh, and then branch-specific additional training. The Army doesn't have any additional training during medical school, so once you do your officer training, uh, you're, you're done, and you're good to go until residency. Uh, but with the Air Force, we got to do an additional couple of weeks of flight medicine training. So I got to go out to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio mm -hmm. and do two weeks of really fun stuff. I got to go up and fly. I got to go in the simulator, uh, learn some flight medicine from astronauts and do some cool stuff that is cool. Uh, to get some extra exposure. So I, I really enjoyed it. But other than that, their goal is to have you be the best doctor you can be because you need to serve the military population. So they don't want to interrupt you and give you extra stressors during medical school. That's the, that's the meat and potatoes of the financial burden. The reality is at the end of 10 years after residency, you're going to be in the same financial situation regardless of how you got there. The big reason for that <clears throat> is that there is a, a little bit of a pay disparity, especially in the more specialized fields in the military active duty as compared to the civilian sector. This becomes more and more prominent with more and more specialized fields, like I said. So I'm going into urology. Uh, and that, that has a more significant pay gap that I'll be making less active duty. Uh, the fields like primary care, uh, family medicine, pediatrics, uh, general hospitalists, their pay is a little bit more similar military compared to civilian. So there, financially, it does make a little bit of a difference. But for me, uh, the finance is really going to be moot after you know 10 years after I'm an attending. So you need to make sure you're getting into this stuff for the right reasons. Mm. Finance should not be it. That's true. And when you were applying through HPSP, did you um, have to meet any different like MCAT GPA quotas than did your friends who went the more traditional route? Yeah, so I did have to meet uh, some, G uh, some GPA and MCAT requirements, uh, mostly because it is a scholarship. It's mm -hmm. Health Profession Scholarship Program, uh, so you're, you're technically applying for it. By and large, if you're competitive enough to get into medical school, you're competitive enough to get into the military. Mm -hmm. Uh, they just want to have their reassurances that if they're putting their legwork in on their end, because there's a lot of red tape, imagine that the government has red tape, yeah. uh, to go through. So they want to make sure that they're investing in someone who's going to get into medical school. But if you show up to a recruiter, you're a normal person, you're physically able to, and you got a paper that says I'm accepted to medical school in your hand, there's a good chance they're going to say, okay, thank you. <laughs> now, if later in life, someone who went through the HPSP... Um, just for some reason regretted the choice and, you know, didn't like the whole pay disparity. They didn't like the uh, commitment to the military itself. Could they switch back into, um, I guess it'd be called uh, civ civilian. civilian medicine, right? Yeah. Um, no, uh, you need to, you have a con contractual obligation to finish out your commitment. So for me, uh, for paying them paying for four years of medical school, I owe four years of active duty after residency. We can get into the different options for residency, mm -hmm. But as far as your question directly, I owe four years. There's no way that I can, by my own volition, get out of that contract mm -hmm. unless there's weird stuff that happens to me health-wise or a change in the military structure, which is possible. There's no way I can say, hey, I don't really want to do this anymore. I'm getting frustrated. I need to leave. Now, once you sign that dotted line, you, you're, you owe. Mm -hmm. Now, even after uh, your four-year um, giving back those four years, there's still that pay disparity, correct? And all the other um, ins and outs of being a military physician. So after the four, the four years of payback is as an attending physician. So uh, if people listening don't uh, aren't super familiar with the structure and the, of the training hierarchy, you go from medical school into residency. The first year of residency is called your internship. Uh, you can have a chief resident year either built into the program where the final year of your residency is your chief year, or some programs have you stay for an extra year as a chief resident. Following that, you have the option of doing a fellowship. 
and then after that you're an attending physician. Mm -hmm. So the payback time that I'm required to give back to the military is as an attending physician. And that's where the pay gap is. I see. Once I'm done with those four years, my contract is up and I can leave the military. Mm -hmm. That being said, the military wants to keep physicians for as long as they can. Mm -hmm. So they usually incentivize you pretty well to stay for that commitment. They'll send you to nice places. (laughs) They'll pay you nice bonuses because they want to keep people that they've already invested all this time and money into training. Yeah, of course. And could you talk more about the um, whole active deployment part of it? Sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely the elephant in the room all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important question. You need to know exactly what you're getting into. So I can answer this as for the state of affairs that it is currently. Uh, you know, we don't have very many active duty uh, troops deployed. So uh, another terminology thing. So where you're stationed is going to be where you reside at a base in mostly the continental United States. We have a couple of bases outside the continental U.S., especially in the Air Force we have. Um, you know, one in Germany, one in the UK, outside of continental, we have one in Alaska, uh, the army sends people out to Hawaii. That's where you're stationed. That's where your, you know, day to day is going to be. And then when you're deployed, that means you go from that base where your home is to an area to deploy for a given period of time. That can be uh, a combat deployment to somewhere, for example, the Middle East, uh, especially if it was wartime, you could deploy to a combat hospital, for example. Mm. Uh, but you could also deploy to Costa Rica for two weeks for disaster relief. You know, or you could deploy to um, a tertiary care center, which is far away from the battlefield, uh, you know, to do your, to do your commitment there. Mm. Uh, different services have different deployment standard lengths as far as, like, maximum deployments. The last I knew, the Air Force was sending people on standard deployments of six months. The Army was sending people on standard deployments of one year. Each of those services can require you to double up your deployment and have extra time. Um, That being said, we don't have very many combat deployments uh, right now uh, because of the state of affairs of the world. In addition, your likelihood to deploy is going to be determined by the specialty that you're in. For example, urology, we don't have a need for deployed far-forward urologists Mm. by and large. Trauma surgeons may be a little more likely to deploy yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, and again, those deployments can, I think it's a scary word, but uh, you're more likely to get seriously injured or killed driving in Dallas, Texas, than you are deploying as a military physician. Think about how much time and money they've put into training you. They're not going to put you out in somewhere that they're going to lose their investment, to yeah. put it as, as bluntly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, there are people doing career military medicine who need more dangerous deployments in order to advance in their careers. A lot of times, especially in the current state of affairs, if you're a surgeon and you really don't want to be in the front line, it's not that hard to not be because there are people who need to do those deployments and are really pushing to do those deployments that are going to get those opportunities. A lot of times it's kind of pushing to get the opportunities rather than the other way around. Hmm. Okay. Again, that's that's a, that's one of my opinions from the information that I know, not the official you know statement of the of the Air Force. Yeah, definitely check up on that if you're interested in this. Um, let's see. And I guess since we talked about the whole active duty portion of it, when you're here on the continent of the U.S., you're working. You said on uh, bases and everything. And are your patients predominantly other military personnel, or are they um, that's, their yeah, families? That's great, great question. Um, so the bases that we send physicians to oftentimes have hospitals and if not pretty large clinics Um, so there are two components to this question one is for residency and one is 
as an attending. So first I'll talk about the attending part after mm -hmm. training's done. So in my example as a urologist, we're a surgical, surgery-heavy field, uh, and we require certain technology in order to do our jobs. So the only places that we station active-duty urologists are places that they can operate and work to their to full extent. You can't just be a urologist in an outpatient clinic. You need to have an operating room. You need to have a robotic uh, surgery console and setup. Uh, you need to have access to things like lasers and um, to do your job as a standard of care. So we station people at eight different places, um, the majority of which have hospitals on the base and others that have hospital privileges close to the base. So, for example, our largest base that we send urologists uh, to in the Air Force is San Antonio. Mm -hmm. The San Antonio Military Medical Center is a very large hospital. It's a level one trauma center that the Department of Defense owns. They service almost exclusively the military, as do all active duty military hospitals, to answer your question directly. Um, so you're working with active duty military, retired military, their families, um, and I think some medically disabled veterans. Mm -hmm. So to directly answer your question about who you're going to be taking care of, you're taking care of all the active duty military on the base and the active duty families. And you're also taking care of people who have retired from the military. So that means they did like their 20 years and got a retirement from the military. And that's predominantly your patient population. Um, larger hospitals like San Antonio get a lot of volume. Smaller hospitals might get a little bit less, but you might also work at a civilian hospital to keep your skills up. So in that case, I imagine that the demand for your specialty would kind of differ, right? Since I imagine that not all former military personnel and their families might need a certain type of specialty. So in that sense, were your options for, for specialization limited at all? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, th another good question. Uh, so I think that what people will assume without knowing very much <clears throat> is that, for example, you can't be a pediatrician in the military because we don't have active duty children, child soldiers in this country. Uh, and that's the the reality is that we desperately need pediatricians because that military man or woman are relying on the doctors at home to take care of their families. Mm -hmm. We need our troops to take care of the mission. And having qualified doctors to take care of their families at home takes an extra stress off of them. It's supporting the mission and getting the most efficient soldier, airman, marine, sailor out there. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> the demand might be a little bit less for the areas like urology and pediatrics and dermatology, but it's still needed. Mm -hmm. I would say that the um, proportion of people graduating medical school who want to go into those more specialized fields like urology, uh, it's there aren't that many of us out there. So I think the proportion is similar to how many are needed by the military. Okay. And <laughs> would you be able to speak more about how the path would differ if you went through a different form of the military, like if through the Navy or the Army? Um, sure. Yeah, I, I can I can neither support nor defend anybody's choice to join any service other than the Air Force, which is by far the best service out there. Um, but no, seriously, um, there are there are small differences between the different services. And again, the best thing that you can do uh, is talk to people who are in it. Mm -hmm. I would say talk to both recruiters and people who are in it because uh, recruiters' knowledge is limited to the extent that they're required to know. Um, so recruiter needs to know a little bit of the bare bones of what life will look like after they get you in. But a lot of times their experience isn't quite enough. So talk to them, but also talk to people who are serving in those in those areas. Um, I will say that the Air Force does not have as many active duty residency spots. 
that's usually the big reason people stay away from the Air Force and will join the Army because they have more active duty uh, residency spots. And there's this assumption that the Air Force will have a more limited spectrum of specialties. And that's not true. It's just simply not true. It's oversimplistic. Mm. The Air Force has a lot of specialties that are trained in the civilian world. For example, I'm training in urology at Emory University. They allow, they know that they don't have enough hospitals to train all of the urologists that they need. So they send a lot of people out into the civilian world to get their training. It's like that for almost all of our specialties. Whereas the army doesn't have the opportunity almost ever to train in the civilian world. Um, there are a few exceptions. Sometimes they'll have kind of like an active duty hybrid with some civilian programs. But by and large, if you join the army, you're going to be doing an active duty army residency at one of those base hospitals like down in San Antonio the, or in Bethesda at Walter Reed or Madigan, Madigan Washington State. Uh, I will say that the quality of those programs is, are excellent. Again, the military wants the best physicians they can get, so they, they spare no uh, expense in getting that. They have great technology. They have eminently qualified faculty. Uh, a big perk of training at a military location is that people who are really specialized, who have gone on to do fellowship training, train at extraordinarily competitive places. Place, places that offer fellowships, for example, uh, MD Anderson is a huge name in cancer. Uh, they are looking for military residents to become fellows because the military is paying their salary. Mm -hmm. MD Anderson doesn't have to pay their salary. And believe it or not, places like free people. It's, you know, it's a big perk. So we're, we, have the, we have the kind of the leverage of sending people to these excellent programs because they want free fellows. Um, so if you train as a resident at a military location, you get excellent exposure with great mentorship, um, and the people are all like-minded. There's little better than training in a location where everybody wants, by and large, the same thing. They want to serve their country. They want to be excellent at what they do, and they're all motivated by the same things. It's mm -hmm. really a terrific place. And I guess going off that, is most of your uh, do you encounter a lot of military colleagues um, thus far in your medical training, or do you anticipate that more at Emory? Uh, I, I think that my medical school, as kind of a fluke, we had like seven military in our class. Mm -hmm. So we had a really tight-knit community and a lot of resources. But that's going to vary by and large depending on, you know, what medical school you go to. Um, it's it's really going to vary a lot. Mm -hmm. At Emory, I probably won't experience almost anybody because the only people doing civilian training programs are mostly going to be Air Force people, and they're going to be spread throughout the United, United States. There aren't a ton of us. Um, so it won't be super common, but I go to conferences and keep in touch with the military um, urology side, so I, I get exposure that way. Mm -hmm. um, to go back and answer the, the rest of your question about differences between the services, that's, that's probably the big one between the Army and the Air Force. Something that's unique about the Navy, um, and you'll have to talk to Navy people to get a better answer about this, but um, I've anecdotally observed a lot of people doing uh, general medical officer assignments. So what that means is that <clears throat> a lot of times people will be selected to go to one year of residency or internship to get their medical license, and then they'll be required to be a general medical officer, which is essentially a primary care physician for a group of people. So in the Navy, you'll be on a ship, and you'll be the doctor for that ship. Some people love that. You know, they want to be out working in the mud with the people. You, you're part of the family. They love you. Um, but some people don't, you know, I, <clears throat> for example, I want, I want to do, I, if you haven't gotten this yet, I'm going into urology. <laughs> so if I was told, okay, you can do urology, but first for four years or three years, you need to be a primary care doctor for a group of very, very healthy people. 
you know, I, I would be reluctant to do so. Mm-hmm. I've noticed a lot of people that end up being required to do GMO tours, general medical officer tours in the Navy. That's a um, relatively common thing. And sometimes people get surprised about that. So I would say that that's not the final answer, but do your research on that. Mm-hmm. The limited amount of uh, people you've encountered who are also from uh, the Air Force or other branches of the United States military who are in your med school, uh, is the culture... Um, well, yeah. How is like the student culture among you guys? It's great. I mean, I mean, it's 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 a great group of people. We we do a lot together. Being in Tampa for my uh, first two years of med school, McDill Air Force Base is down there. And if your medical school is by a base of any branch, you can go on it. You can get cheap groceries. You can go play golf because I'm in the Air Force. And that's what we do. <laughs> uh, you know, you can <clears throat> uh, go to restaurants on base. They often have recreation. You can go sh- at McDill. You can go shoot trap play golf you can go to their beach you know there's all camp Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of bases have that and it doesn't matter what branch the base is you can still go there so we would have a lot of outings the camaraderie is terrific Um, and there are there's we don't have the stress of financial aid but we have the stress of reimbursements and assignments and duty tours uh, that we need to um, balance and it's nice to have that that community to do that Mm -hmm. I just thought of another thing that I I don't think I would be I think I would be remiss in not mentioning Um, you are required in your fourth year to do active duty rotations. So that's nothing different than what everybody else is doing because you're, you're rotating in different medical specialties, but these are at active duty locations. So most people, for example, if you're going into pediatrics, uh, you're going to, in your third year, do all of your core rotations. This is how every medical school is. You do core rotations in your third year in all the specialties to see a little bit of everything, surgery, psychiatry, medicine, pediatrics, OB-GYN. Um, and then in your fourth year, when you start applying for residency, you'll rotate in that specialty specifically for a decent chunk of the year. The military is going to have you do two 30-day rotations at base hospitals. This serves a couple purposes. It gets you exposure to military medicine and it allows the program directors, which are the people that pick the residents for their programs, to meet. So it's kind of like a month-long interview. You mm-hmm. work with the team, you're on the floor, uh, you know, you're taking care of patients, and you're interacting. Because when you go to apply for residency, they're the people that write your letters of recommendation, they're the people who pick where everybody goes. Um, and having that exposure is awesome. So I, ro- I rotated down in San Antonio because it's the only place that we have an active duty residency for urology. And you get paid as a second lieutenant. You don't get paid the stipend. So I made a good amount of money. They pay for your hotel. They pay for your flight. They pay for your rental car. They give you a per diem to pay for all of your food. So I made out like a bandit getting to work at, uh, you know, a military base hospital and just see some awesome stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a great component. So you do two active duty rotations um, in, your, in your fourth year. Okay, and you said that's not specialty specific. That's through that's through all of them, right? That's through all the specialties and all the branches. Okay, yeah. <laughs> for a sec, when you said active duty rotation, I thought you meant like they send you overseas for like thirty days, yeah. come back, <laughs> right? And then... <laughs> um, you can do that. You can do that through um, if you go to the military medical school. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who did a rotation um, on a on a uh, medical ship, you know, for for a month, and it was pretty cool. But so us, us lowly uh, civilian HPSP folks, um, <laughs> I shouldn't say, so that's another good point. I, we're not civilian HPSP folks. We're in the reserves. Mm-hmm. And we're not in the active reserves. We're in the uh, individual ready reserve. So uh, essentially what that means is it would take an act of God to get us to deploy or do anything military-esque. 
they don't want to interrupt your medical school for anything. Even if a war broke out, the odds that they'd stop, they'd say, no, you can't finish medical school is extraordinarily low. They need doctors. I'm not trained to do anything else. You know, I'm trained to be a medical student. So I wouldn't help them at all, and they're going to need doctors. So the fear of having to leave uh, medical school or residency to fulfill a, a duty requirement outside of that is very low. Mm-hmm. And going back to your skills that you were mentioning, do you think that you have learned or you will learn any specific skills that you think uh, people who go the traditional route will not learn? Absolutely. Uh, nobody teaches leadership like the United States military mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One, it's essential to fulfill the mission, you know, to know leadership. But two, I, my personal opinion is that in order to train leadership, you need to be put under duress. And the duress that you're able to be put under in the military won't fly in the civilian world. You know, uh, other than residency, there's never an opportunity where you get to be sleep deprived, yelled at, and put under, you know, all kinds of stress. You know, when we go to officer training, it's it's five to six weeks of, of fairly intense work. You know, we, we learn to march, we learn customs and courtesies, we learn how to wear the uniform and respect the flag. Uh, and then we get to learn leadership in a way that you can't find elsewhere uh, by trained leaders in, in the hierarchy, in the command. Uh, and we're given simulation, we're given tasks, uh, we're taught to be leaders and followers and, and be good at that. When I went from that to medical school leadership training, which is a big part of my curriculum, and they do it well for a civilian you know, kind of component, you just you just can't do it Unmatched, in a PowerPoint. Right. There are leadership techniques. There are things like conflict management and team dynamics that you can learn the fundamentals of. But getting out into the field and doing that is really difficult. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I have no reservation saying that my military experience, hands down, made me a better leader. Mm-hmm. And during that leadership training, are you trained by uh, superior doctors? Or are they just um, other leaders in the Army? Interestingly, no. It's, it's, it's um, other... Uh, folks in the military, uh, I'm only trained by, I was only trained by Air Force people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my direct instructor in a group of my flight, which was about 13 people, she was a former Marine and she was made of rusty nails. And she then came over to the Air Force. I guess she saw the light. Uh, and, and, you know, she put us through the ringer, man. It was not easy. If you stepped out of line, you knew it fast. Uh, it was, it was very stressful. And then at the end, we all went out for dinner, and she laughed at you know how she mean him. Um, but uh, so she was, uh, I, you know, she had combat deployments. She was not medical in any respect, and that's how the majority of, of people who train you are going to be. They're just, uh, you know, higher ups, often captains or majors uh, in the Air Force and Army. The ranks are different in the Navy. Nobody other than the Navy people know the ranks mm-hmm. in the Navy. Um, so yeah, that's that's the long answer to your question. <laughs> okay, and one more time, you mentioned it before. When is that in your medical training? Like when do you sure. go through that? So um, the Air Force is trying aggressively to get people approved for HPSP in time to do their officer training before the first year of medical school. Okay, that's the goal. It's not always possible because of how long it takes sometimes to get people approved, or when the person applies for the scholarship. Uh, I would say that right now a lot of people do their officer training in between the first year and second year of medical school. That's certainly true in the Army and the Navy, and it's still true to an extent in the Air Force, although it's trying to transition, mostly because the Air Force also has this component of flight medicine training that we do, and it's nice to be able to do that in between first and second year. Okay. And did uh, you signing the HPSP scholarship, did that come up in any of your interviews at all? Did they know about for, it? For medical school? Yeah, for medical school. Uh, yeah, it did. Um <clears throat> This is going to depend on when you're interviewing because med school admissions, by and large, are rolling admissions. So it's kind of first come, first serve. 
Uh, and a lot of times that's going to be really early in your application process for the military. So it's certainly reasonable to mention that you're really strongly pursuing the HPSB scholarship. Um, I would say almost never will a school uh, give you more favor because of the financial component of it. I think that might yeah. be something a recruiter will say. You know, oh, mention this in your interview because they're going to love the fact that they have somebody paying you for your medical school. I think that's a stretch by a lot. Um, but they will hear that your priorities and your ideals are something that they're probably looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, they have someone there who's aggressively looking for a program that's going to teach them leadership, dedication, tradition, uh, supporting a greater mission, being a follower. Uh, and that that is terrific. Um, I will say that later on when you're applying to residency, it made me stand out dramatically. Uh, people loved talking about the military component of what I learned and I think it made me a very, very competitive applicant. Okay. Yeah, it's really good to know, actually. Um, and I guess just to close off this latter half of the interview, is there any closing thoughts or recommendations you would give to uh, pre-med students in either pursuing the military route or just the whole pre-med journey as a whole? Yeah, um, I would say there's a ton to focus on. I mean, there's making yourself competitive through organizations, your GPA, your MCATs, deciding on how you're going to pay for medical school, don't forget to enjoy college. You know, it's really easy to do. Uh, I think that a lot of times it's really difficult to see the forest for the trees while you're in college because you're studying chemistry or biology. You're looking at plants or, you know, the molecular basis of life or, you know, you're synthesizing chemicals or something like that. But it's hard to apply that then and there to see the greater meaning and what you're really working towards. It may seem very intimidating to think of doing four more years of education, but the closer you get to graduating medical school, the more and more close you get to really seeing why you got into it in the first place. You get that spark back about why you did it. Because, I mean, it's just so extraordinarily stressful. Mm-hmm. And you get you get really down on yourself in college because, like, what the hell am I putting all of this work into? But it is absolutely worth it. This is the greatest profession in the world. I mean, nothing will fulfill you like having that conversation with a patient who's sick and afraid and needs to put trust in someone and you're the someone. So keep your head up and enjoy college. De-stress a little bit when you can. Uh, work hard, party hard is, is kind of what I did. And I I don't regret anything that I've you know done leading up to this. That's awesome. That's a good cap for the, for the uh, ending of the interview. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cardinal Med Podcast. If you found any of this information helpful, please be sure to rate us well on iTunes or whatever platform you found us on. If you did not, uh, we'd equally appreciate some constructive criticism as well. That way we can improve and best help you as a student succeed. Consider becoming a patron on Patreon uh, if you want some inside gifts from Cardinal Med um, and just want to see us grow in production and quality. Finally, just as a bit of a disclaimer, any information you obtain via Cardinal Med is for entertainment purposes only and should 100% be verified with your own pre-med advisor as they can provide a much more individualized approach. Um, I am not a pre-med advisor. I am a student much like yourself, just with some additional experiences. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.